1888 Podcast Network. I'm John Barrett Ingalls, and this is The How, The Why. Presented by 1888. Every week we connect with artists, authors, and innovators in the world of publishing and literature to discuss their creative process and creative purpose and explore the evolution of the industry. 1888 serves as a regional catalyst for the preservation, presentation, and promotion of cultural heritage and literary arts. Let's get connected. This episode was recorded live at 1888 Center by Bruce Sessions Live. Uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Um, my name is John Barrett Ingalls, and uh, we are here today with Hector Tobar, journalist, uh, author, uh, professor as well, uh, author of uh, Deep Down Dark, such a phenomenal book about the uh, 33 Chilean miners trapped in the, mine, in the San Jose mine, and also author of Barbarian Nurseries. Um, Hector, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It's great to be here. I would love to start by talking about uh, you you got your start working in journalism, um, and I'd love to know what was the push to move in that direction? Uh, to become a journalist. Well, um, you know, I, I grew up a uh, son of immigrants, and I didn't know that writing was a profession that you could have. I mean, I grew up in a household with lots of books, uh, my father loved reading novels, especially in Spanish, um, but I didn't know that writing was a profession. And so I uh, went to college, pre-med degree, and I ended up uh, majoring in sociology, Latin American studies, and going off and working in a community newspaper just for fun. And I got the journalism bug. And um, I, just, I just loved uh, reporting, going out on the street, uh, meeting people, one of the first stories I did in community journalism was for uh, this little paper called El Tecolote in San Francisco, and it was about prostitution in the North Mission District. And, you know, I was like a very quiet, bookish kid, and suddenly I was thrown into the streets, you know, interviewing people on the streets about street prostitution. And it was just like, wow, I, it was like this opening up this whole world to me, you know, that I didn't really, that I was afraid to approach. And I think I grew up loving language and just being able to, to manipulate language in a, in a printed story, having it be read, seeing my name on top of it. You know, it was just a very, um, for a kid, for a very shy person, I'm an only child, uh, really very much a loner even to this day, uh, to be able to, you know, to interact with people as a result of this very solitary activity, which is writing, and then you're transformed into this powerful person on the page. And um, so it became addictive really quickly. How did you end up getting the job? What was the uh, application process like for that? Well, my first job at a community newspaper, I just showed up and I volunteered for like maybe three or four months. I was a volunteer. And then uh, they got a grant and uh, to hire uh, a full-time editor. And since I, I was the person who was there the most all the time, they paid me $9 an hour. And it was my first ever paid job as a writer. Um, and then I accumulated clips and I signed up for this internship at the LA Times. Um, and I got in and that was my first job at a sort of mainstream newspaper. 
And that was uh, what, like 1988 that you came down? Yeah, I, was, I, I, I came to the LA Times in 1988, yeah. Uh, and what was that experience of transitioning from a small local paper to something as big and, and, and massive as the well, these were the hell heydays of the LA Times too. It was it had a circulation of 1.3 million? You know, it was this massive thing that every, even the you know the, the Sunday paper was like about four inches thick, you know, and just this massive thing. And I remember the interview. Uh, I was sitting in a room with a whole bunch of editors from all, from many different papers that LA Times owned, um, with City Hall, LA City Hall in the background. I could see LA City Hall at the end of this long conference table, and it was really intimidating. But then to be able to write and be published in my hometown, you know, my, my dad, a uh, Guatemalan immigrant, used to deliver the LA Times when I was a kid. And to suddenly have my name in it, it was, um, and to be able to, you know, come up with my own story ideas in addition to being a cop reporter, in addition to covering things like Glendale City Council, I had to cover the Glendale City Council, um, in, in addition to doing these sort of, uh, beat reporter, young reporter, cub reporter things, I was also given free reign to write about homeless camps and write about drug addiction and immigrants. And it was just for a little, for a guy who was shy, uh, you know, 25 years old, and suddenly to be given this tribune, you know, where you could speak to the entire city, it was, it was really uh, overwhelming. So you were able to pitch your own story ideas. Oh, absolutely. And that was part of what I was brought in for, was I was brought in as a you know Latino hire, a newspaper live you know uh, delivering papers to an increasingly Latino city that didn't have any Latino reporters. Well, I was going to say, yeah, were you very few, very few. And so um, my mission was to come up with story ideas and to go and venture into the city and come up with new tales of how the city was changing, who these Spanish-speaking people really were, what their dreams were, what their foibles were, and it was that that was. Uh, that was the beginning of my career as, as, a, as a journalist and a writer. I want to take us to uh, April of 1992. Oh, right, yes. And, uh, I mean, you, there are big events that you're writing about in the, the local city, but uh, that had to have been a pretty traumatic per event of the L.A. riots, uh, not only as a reporter, but just as somebody whose city this was. Uh, and I'd love for you to talk about what, what your role is was with uh, uh, writing and reporting for the LA riots. Yeah, I, I think the, the months leading up to the riots, uh, uprising, whatever you want to call it, of April 1992 were just very full of convulsions in the city. Uh, it began with, well, even before the beating of Rodney King, which started off the whole, the, what were the events that would lead to the burning down of, of big chunks of the city. I had covered lots of stories of police abuse, you know, of, of people being shot who were unarmed. I just I remember very vividly going to the home of this Latino family uh, in South LA where a young man had been shot uh, when the police said that they had thought that the towel wrapped up in the back of his car was a weapon. And and so there were just it was it wasn't just Rodney King, there was it was a many inc incidents in the city. Of 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 uh, of just excess among the on the police force, um, the LAPD has really changed dramatically in the years since, by the way. But at any rate, um, and so there was that, and I also was writing about homelessness a lot and, and immigration and poverty, and so my vision of what the city was. I grew up in LA in the '60s and '70s. LA was this incredible place, building freeways, 
you know, building rockets to send men to the moon, and uh, you know, the rock and roll and Capitol Records and Sunset Strip and everything, and to see this underside of the city in the months before, the years before the riots, I sort of, you felt it sort of, something was building. And then it exploded on that day. And to see, uh, and I, my ta I had various tasks. The first night, I was a rewrite person on a story about the police reaction to the verdict in the trial of the police officers accused of beating Rodney King. So I was in the office of the LA Times um, at first in spring. And the office came under attack by this mob outside who set the a couple of rooms on the first floor on fire. And so that was pretty intense, to be in this uh, symbol of corporate power that was under attack, you know, <laughs> from these outside forces, these, you know, guys throwing rocks. The newsroom was on the third floor, and I remember a couple of rocks hitting the, you know, the windows on the third floor. Um, that was intense enough. The next day, we thought the riot was over, and so they sent me out to do a, a, a sort of follow-up story on the economic impact of the riot of the night before. And so I drove out to South Los Angeles. I think I started off like Slauson and Vermont, interviewing people like at grocery stores and whatnot. And all of a sudden, you see the city burning again. You'd see these columns of smoke and fire go up into the air. And, um, you know, I, I really, you did feel you were seeing a historical moment, and it was sort of exhilarating for the first hour or so to see that there was no uh, order, there was no police force, it was an insurrectionary moment, you know. But after about an hour, it devolved into this free-for-all in which you saw people getting beaten up on the street because they were telling people not to set fires, and, and I had... You know, I had nightmares about this for you know, several months afterwards of just of seeing a couple of people being beaten on the street, uh, seeing people being shot. I saw a guy got sh uh, get shot in the buttocks in front of a in front of a shoe store, and um, and so that was it was it, it was all of this uh, accumulated uh, just anger, accumulated garbage of the city, frustration. I mean, I could. I could speak about this topic for about an hour, the deindustrialization of the city, homelessness, immigration, people, immigrant people feeling left out, working for below minimum wage, not having any route to citizenship. This is incredible frustration that built up uh, on many levels. It was an African-American you know, uprising against police that evolved into this Latino poverty riot that evolved into this attack on pogrom on Korean merchants. It was this multifaceted sort of bloodletting and, you know, fire setting. And that yeah. could only really happen in L.A. I mean, with all of those different factions. So the fact, I mean, I, I can't think maybe, you know, in a different era somewhere else, but like with the African-American and the Latino community and that Korean community all in the same place. Yes, all kind living of together. Yeah, forced it, and thrust in with each other. Like it could only, it was bound to happen at yeah, some point. Yeah, it was, definitely. Um, and you became the bureau chief of uh, Mexico City mm -hmm. and uh, Buenos Aires as well. Um, and I'd love for you to talk about what your role was uh, down there and what was that experience like? Well, I sort of kept ascending through the levels of the, 
uh, Stations of the Cross of the newspaper, you know, and I did my time as a county government reporter at the LA County Board of Supervisors. And I just did a whole bunch of things. And I, you know, I eventually got a job. I got the job as the Buenos Aires Bureau Chief, which was great. I covered like six countries in South America. And what I, what I had, what I did as a correspondent is what I did as a city reporter. It's like when I was a city reporter, LA is so big that you go off to a neighborhood that most people in LA are never going to visit. So I remember I visited Frogtown, you know, Elysian Valley, you know, and you have you can you go to Frogtown as an outsider and you talk to the people there and you describe Frogtown to the people in Beverly Hills or the West Side or in Orange County who will never go there. Or you go to Watts and people in Orange County travel to Watts with your eyes, your your words. So it was basically the same thing. I was doing the same thing except I had Bolivia to go to and Chile, you know. And it, it just, to me, I just felt like it was such a privilege to be this professional witness. You could go, I could go almost anywhere within my beat. And I went to the Falkland Islands. I took my family there with me and wrote a story about the anniversary of the Falklands War. I went to Easter Island. I saw a revolution in Bolivia. Um, it was it was just, I mean, for I'm a basically a quiet kid who grew up on Herald Way in East Hollywood, now called Little Armenia. And, you know, that was my world. And to be tra to be sort of the eyes and ears of the city in South America, you know, that was, it was a great privilege and it was just wonderful to do. And I, I just had a great time. So it seems like this was a career and you were set and this was what you were meant to do. But in 1995, you made the choice to go back to school and get your MFA in creative writing. And was that just because you felt or what was the, the decision for that? Well, um, yeah, you know, I, I feel like in order to have a career, you have to sort of obey rules and then break them, you know, and you have to sort of go between, and it's the same holds for being a business person or starting a, a cultural center. You know, you, you, you obey certain rules, but then you have a vision that's unique to yourself that you, you have to break rules and you have to be, uh, you know, do things that aren't the things that you're supposed to do. Right. Right. Supposed to do in air quotes. And so um, I, yes, I was ascending through the LA Times and I was being groomed for all these different things. But I really felt the limitations of the form, you know. Um, I felt, um, you know, you usually get in newspaper stories 900 words. I'd go out and spend an hour talking with a homeless guy at a homeless camp. Uh, in central LA or heroin addict or Salvadoran immigrant and they'd tell me all these incredible stories and I'd have to sort of boil it down to whatever issue I was writing about, you know? Journalism is very issue-centric. Right. And those days in the newsroom, you know, everybody was reading novels. We were talking about our favorite writers and thanks to my fellow writers at the LA Times, I read Don DeLillo for the first time, Italo Calvino for the first time and I started getting literary ambitions. And I realized that the newspaper could not be the outlet for those ambitions. So while I was still a reporter, I actually came to a place like, you know, the, much like the 1888 Center. I went to a cultural center called Beyond Baroque and took some writing classes. Um, I went to UCLA Extension and took night classes on short story writing. And I started to put together my application for an MFA and I got into the great program at UC Irvine. And I wanted to write the great American novel or at least the great Guatemalan American novel, you know. And, um, and it was, it was um, great. I, you know, the thing is, when you grow up in an immigrant family or a working class family, you grow up with very practical notions of what education is supposed to be. So I never th could think of myself as an artist, you know. It was very, it was almost, it, it, I, I would embarrass myself if I ever called myself that. And so 
to go to a master's in fine arts program and get an MFA, which, you know, is called, you know, colloquially we call it a mother freaking artist, you know, <laughs> and to be, you know, it's like, wow, I can be an artist and to be with other people in your program who think of writing as art. And that was extremely liberating. And, um, and I wrote my first novel, The Tattooed Soldier. Through the program? Yeah, with, through the with, program. It was my thesis. Yeah. It was my MFA thesis. And I wrote most of it here in Orange County. I wrote it in Fullerton because my wife and I were living in Fullerton. I'd take long walks through old, old town Fullerton after I wrote. And I was writing this novel about the Guatemalan genocide. Then that novel, The Tattooed Soldier, ends with the burning of Los Angeles. It's about uh, a Guatemalan refugee who sees the sol soldier, the Guatemalan soldier who killed members of his family on an LA street corner and plots his revenge. So in my head, I was in the Guatemalan Civil War, I was in the LA riots, while I was walking down these nice streets with orange blossoms, you know, over by Cal State Fullerton. Um, so yeah, that, that's, I, I did it because I, I wanted to be a, a bigger writer, I wanted to be a more powerful writer, I wanted to sort of learn how to manipulate and how to control language. Hmm. And you, I've noticed on your website, you, you call yourself a literary journalist. Mm -hmm. um, and I know you do a lot more uh, critique and reviews, uh, and you were doing that for a while. What was the transition? Was it because of the MFA program and, and exploring uh, more of those uh, expressions of yourself that, that led you to that? or Well, what happened was I, I did eventually sell my first novel, and I sold it for $5,000. That was like three years' work which I actually would have made more money if I had started a gardening service, yes, for those three years. And so I wanted, my, my wife and I wanted to start a family, and so I went back to journalism. Hmm. And, but I went back to journalism now as someone who had written a novel, and so I think I, I had a little bit more cachet in the newsroom, and I got to do lar larger projects. And so, I, you know, I began to think, too, of journalism. I, I wanted to write novels, and I had published one novel. And I was starting a second and had a very, very long journey with my second novel. It actually lasted 15 years, believe it or not, but that's, that's another story. Barbarian Nurseries. The Barbarian yeah. Nurseries, that was almost 15 years from start to finish. Um, and, um, and so, um, yeah, so I began, you know, I, I realized, though, that having written a novel made me a much better journalist mm. because I was much more bold with the, my use of language. I was much more demanding of myself. I, 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 I saw that I could use the techniques of fiction and apply that to journalism. And, um, and, you know, reporting itself, gathering information, is itself a process that requires imagination. You have to imagine what's out there. You have to have this idea, I'm going to find this crazy guy someplace to tell me a story. And you knock on a few doors and you find someone who tells you a story that's not quite exactly what you imagined, but it's actually better, you know? And, um, and so, once again, I, I just really enjoyed that process of going back into the city, but now thinking like a writer, you know, thinking like a novelist. You know, so my questions changed. I wouldn't just ask the Cuban refugee in Miami I interviewed about what he thought about Fidel. I'd also ask him, Senor, do you know what kind of trees there are on this street? They're so beautiful. Oh, Senor, they're jacarandas, right, you know? Right. And so, um, yeah, I, I changed my style of reporting and I, I tried to bring a little bit of the novel into all the stories I started to write. Well, it's interesting too, in reading both of, of these books, uh, The Barbarian Nurseries has this I, I read that first and then went into Deep Down Dark, and there was this weight 
that you have in obviously uh, uh, Deep Down Dark is a really heavy story of the 33 Chilean miners trapped for 69 days. But there's a very similar weight that exists in the lives of Araceli and Maureen and Scott. And it made me think about the tragedy, so-called tragedies that we experience on a regular basis. And I, I just wanted to let you know how wonderful that felt to read that and be like, whoa, I mean, there's a nut, you know, we're not all forced or have to experience being trapped underground and starving, near starving, to experience that level of tragedy. So these many tragedies experience ha or happen in our lives on a regular basis. And I think you did a really good job of uh, capturing that in Barbarian Nurseries. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, I think it took me a long time to really realize that writing was really about people. Mm -hmm. And uh, and having, you know, like I wrote my first version of the Barbarian Nurseries, it's called Farewell California, and it was about a family. And I wrote it before I even had a family, and it really wasn't very good, and nobody bought it, you know, and it was rejected by every publisher in New York, in Minnesota, North Carolina, wherever. Wherever there were publishers, they rejected it, right? And it was because I hadn't really done a, I hadn't respected my characters in that book. And I learned a really valuable lesson from that, which is that anytime you write about anybody, you have to really respect the whole person. I tell this now to my writing students. When you interview someone, you're not just interviewing the crime victim or a politician or you know a day laborer. You're interviewing a human being. Mm -hmm. And so your job is to find out as much as you can about them and, to, and, and not just the thing that you want to write about. It's what they have to tell you. And so I, have, I apply that to now to both the writing of fiction and nonfiction. If I'm writing a work of fiction, I have to take time to put myself in this woman's body. I have to take time to put myself into the, you know, into a into an African American character right. or a child, you know, or a child, yeah. you know. Um, and so you use little parts of yourself that guide you into the character. Now, when you're interviewing a real person, and you're going to put them in a book like these miners, well, you know, tell me about yourself. Tell me how you got into mining. Tell me what was beautiful about working in the mine. Tell me what was scary about it. Not, don't just tell me about the accident, which is what the whole world wants to know. I want to know how you got here, right? I want to know what you want to tell me. And, um, and that, that strategy works on many levels because, first of all, I believe people can tell um, when you're manipulating them. So if I interview, a, ask you a series of questions that show what my bias is, you'll pick up on that and you'll close down to me. And I also believe that readers can tell when you're shallow, when you're manipulative as a writer. I really believe that. I mean, my faith in readers has increased. I really believe in the intelligence and the basic empathy of the reader, and the reader can tell when you're hiding something or when you haven't opened your mind to a truth that is really there that you haven't noticed, you know? And so I, I apply those principles to also to nonfiction and journalism. That's interesting that you say that, because one of the things I wanted to talk about is you have some 50 plus characters yes. who you're following along in this story. You have the 33 miners, the miners, yeah. you have their families, you have the politicians of Chile, you have the drillers who are trying to rescue them, and everyone you've honored the life of in this book. As I'm reading, there was never confusion about who I was reading about. You did such a great job of painting the pictures. I mean, it's, it's such a beautiful emotional book, and um, 
I would love for you to talk about how, you know, I'm sure you've talked about this millions of times, but I would love for you to talk about how you were selected with this honor of being able to talk to all of these people. Um, well, these guys were trapped, right? Um, 2,000 feet underground. And they were, when they came out, they were world celebrities. And even before they got out, with the they videos. Had an, yeah, they yeah. had an agreement underground. We're going to stick together. We're going to tell our story to one person, sell one book, not 20 books. You know, we're going to share. Everyone's going to get an equal share of whatever money is made from this. And then they got out and they signed a contract with a lawyer. That lawyer signed a contract with William Morris Endeavor in New York. And that agency represents me. So they were looking for someone who spoke Spanish, someone who had been a journalist, someone who was a novelist too, because they wanted a book that was weighty, you know, because a lot of stuff had already been written really quick and it was they wasn't all that great. So they wanted something that was gonna be a little bit more literary. And anyways, all the list of qualities, um, and also somebody who knew South America, that's like me and three other people, right. you know? And so <laughs> I got the gig. But then getting the gig was one thing, and it's also getting them to trust me. And um, and that just involved being my usual self, my humble self. And what I soon realized was that each one of these guys reminded me of my dad. Hmm. You know, they were um, really ambitious guys who had, you know, made mistakes in their lives. Many of them had mistresses. Many of them had drinking problems. Not all of them. But, you know, many of them had the... And they're an older group, too. I mean, the, yeah, a lot of them from are... 19 until 50 or yeah. so. Yeah, most of them about, I would say the average age, probably about 35 or so. And um, and just, you know, they, they were guys who were, you know, just had all these imperfections and also this incredible ambition. That's why they were down there. Because they didn't want to just settle for the easy job. They wanted the really hard job where they could make a lot of money. And so, um, you know, I had to win their trust. And that was, I think, the most important thing. And also because they were starting to fight among themselves and the whole thing was falling apart. And part of what I did for three years was negotiating between them and trying to keep them all calm and fighting from each other and dividing from being divided with each other and fighting from, with their lawyers, keep them all together, keep the project going from falling apart. And I had to write it quicker than the movie came out, and it was, it was just, it was... Yeah, I was going to say, there, there had to have been a pressure, knowing how big this story is, and the fact that these other, like, Slipshot books already yes. came out. Uh, what, how do you, how did you change your work ethic in order to oh, get right. that done in such a timely manner? Um, I, I really, I, I didn't really feel like I rushed it, you know? I didn't feel like I rushed it at all. It didn't I, feel rushed. No, I, I don't feel like I rushed it, but I felt, um, I really did feel a sense of urgency because, and so I did write it in three and a half years, which is the fastest I've ever written a book, actually. Um, and, um, but no, I just, I tried to be really focused. I, I'm a morning writer. The world, I believe, is divided into two camps, morning writers and night writers, you know? And I'm a morning writer, and so I'd get up at uh, 5, 6 in the morning, like I usually have for the past 30 years, which is insane, I know. And I'd be usually be done working by 10 or 11 o'clock and, um, and just you know keep going. And I was really lucky. I was working with these film people, and they transcribed all of my interviews, almost all of my interviews. So I had mm, maybe 600 pages of transcription, single-spaced in Spanish. Um, so that helped tremendously. Uh, the movie people also paid for me to go down to Chile a couple of times. They set up interviews for me. I was sort of like their research person. I was also writing the book, and I was giving my pages to the screenwriter. Um, so it was, I had a lot of help. That helped, yeah, definitely. How does it uh, feel 
now that we're fresh off of this other traumatic rescue with the uh, 13 kids in Thailand, or the 12 kids in their coach? Well, I was thinking a lot about why it is we as a global culture are riveted by these events, you know, and, and really um, on, on one level, a uh, very intimate level, it's an act of love, you know, the people, the family members, they go to the place, they went to the mine, they went to the cave where these boys were trapped. Yeah, the and they said, Yeah, and they said, our children matter, these miners matter, they matter. And then the world is, lives this sort of this drama that seeps into our subconscious, you know. Being trapped in the dark is something very visceral. Um, you know, I wrote in the, in the miners book that we, we can't measure the dream space of humanity, but almost certainly more people had dreams about being trapped in the dark <laughs> while this thing happened in Chile. And so we identify with these men or children or boys in, in a dark place struggling to survive. And I think it, it brings out the best, uh, it brings out some of the best in people. Um, and we want to be, we want to, we want to have that reaffirmed in ourselves that we really are a good, you know, a good, a good planet. Yeah. Know? And it, it definitely, there's that sense of, of hope, which I brought up to you a little bit before our interview. There's a, a, a hope where you, for the most part, want to see everyone rescued. I'm sure right. there are some people who want to watch disaster and that's what they get off on. But there, for the majority of us, we want this to turn out good. We're riveted and kind of afraid to watch that it's not going to be good at the end. But I think it's that that hope that that keeps us there. And I don't know, you know, if that's a spiritual, you know, higher force well, I, thing. I, or I think that's what that's also what storytellers seek out. You know, storytellers seek out um, true tales of the human spirit because. We want to believe that things are, um, we want to believe the best about ourselves and about the people around us. For me, as a reporter, as a Latino reporter, my struggle is I want to see positive, I want to see stories about the real Latino community, which is, yes, uh, many immigrants are being uh, railroaded, they're being rounded up, they're being treated um, uh, like garbage. And at the same time, the Latino United States is incredibly resilient and creative and continues to build this country. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've tried to do as a journalist, you know, for 25, 30 years is to tell stories, the full story, not just stories of victimization. Yes, there is incredible amounts of victimization, not just stories of dysfunction. Yes, there is dysfunction in the Latino community, but also stories about institution building, stories about building a new culture in this country. You know, Latino culture has changed the United States um, the way African-American culture has and Italian culture has, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, I think that that's, that's always been part of my mission as a writer. But it does seem, especially now in this day and age, that that victimization is the main storyline. And well, That's and what The Barbarian Nurseries is about. You yeah. know, The Barbarian Nurseries, I started writing this novel in Orange County when Proposition 187 uh, was going down in the 1990s, which was this initiative, right, to deny undocumented immigrants public services. And so I wanted to write a story about an undocumented protagonist who was a real person and not just, you know, this victimized person. And so I'm Araceli in the novel is basically my alter ego. She is an intellectual in the body of a servant, you know. 
Um, she wants to be a painter, and yet she's a domestic, live-in domestic. And that's, that's sort of the story of my life. I'm this, well, maybe not so much anymore that I'm older, but when I was younger, you, you're a young Latino person in the city. The last thing people are you imagine you to be is an intellectual, you know? And, um, and so I've struggled with that all my life as have educated Latino people in the city, you know? And, um, and so I wanted to give, I gave that to Araceli because that I think is true of what LA is. Right. You know, every guy working in a taco truck, he thinks of himself as the great Gatsby, you know? It's like, that's his vision of himself. He is doing something that is going to be big. Um, it's not just this taco truck next, you know, it's fleet. gonna be the yeah. world, you know? Mm -hmm. And yeah. so he has these ambitions. And that to me is not yet reflected in American culture as much as it should be. And so part of our job as writers, as makers of culture, is to reflect that reality, to bring it in uh, into, the, into American culture. But how do you do that when you work for publications like New York Times or The New Yorker, which are viewed as more left-leaning publications, how do you get that message to the people who need to hear that message, who are the people who probably aren't going to read those publications? I think, um, I think the secret is art. You know, I just think the secret is, is mastering your craft right. and, um, and being a badass as a writer or a filmmaker or a cultural uh, entrepreneur, whatever it is you do. You know, you, if you, have to, um, you have to imagine works that will open people's eyes. And, you know, I think um, maybe, and I don't really, I don't necessarily mean that grand novel or that incredibly powerful film that's going to, you know, be a bestseller or going to fill up the box office. I think that many of us, hundreds of us, doing, uh, writing novels for small presses or bigger houses or writing plays that are produced in regional theaters or doing community theater, all of that I think has a cumulative effect. I know this country is different now than it was 20 years ago. There are things, uh, Latino, there are things you can do in American literature today that you couldn't do 25 years ago. My first novel, The Tattooed Soldier, is this violent, bloody political novel about Central America and homelessness in LA. And New York publishers were like confused. I mean, they had never seen anything like this before. It was sort of, you know, and, and now it's, it's much, there's much more room for writers of color, uh, writers who believe in social change. There's more room for them to work in, you know. The culture, uh, the, the United States, despite everything that's happened, the United States is actually more open-minded about certain cultural issues, or at least, at least, I don't know, a, a lot of, I mean, some sectors are much more open-minded. There's more possibilities now than there were 25 years ago in terms of gender also. You know, uh, it's just another world, even the last five years in terms of gender. Um, and so I have, I have, I'm an optimistic person. You know, I believe that every little bit can change something. So I was saying that what made the story of the miners and the boys in Thailand so compelling, I, f I feel, is that sense of hope. Do you feel that sense of hope with regards to journalism about our politics and about our country right now? Well, I think there's two things. I mean, I think that journalism about Washington, D.C., or even Sacramento, it's, it's impossible pretty much to do anything that's hopeful, right, about that. 
Um, what I'm hopeful is what I see in my students. You know, I'm a professor at UC Irvine now. I've done a full year there, my first year. And I have had a window into the minds of the 20-something generation. Uh, and what I see is vision. Uh, I see uh, open-mindedness. I see intelligence and curiosity about, uh, about, um, about cultural diversity, about inequality, um, uh, and also people dealing with their own stuff, you know? And I, I had the great fortune to teach um, 150 mostly Latino students this uh, class about Latino culture that culminated with them writing something about, the, about Latino culture, about their, mostly about their lives. And I just saw these, oh, I just was in the head of 150 you know, young people traveling into the 21st century, dealing with their grandparents' memories of crossing the border, dealing with their own status, dealing with the trauma of having been in a safe house, you know, as a kid, as an immigrant, dealing with what it's like to be, uh, you know, in a, a, a Salvadoran kid in a relationship with a Chinese girl in the San Gabriel Valley when her parents don't want to talk to you, you know, it's like, oh my God, there's like, and they're dealing with it, you know, mm -hmm. they're dealing with it, or like to be Colombian and then to come out as sort of transgendered and having people be confused about who you are, and they're not like putting themselves on the cross, you know what I'm saying? They're like, this is what makes me a badass, is that I'm dealing with this deal with me world. And that is really exciting to witness. And it makes me really hopeful for the future of this country. It's, I have the most hope for the future of this country when I'm teaching. I think that's a <laughs> perfect, perfect place to end. That was amazing. Uh, well, Hector, Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Uh, I love these books. I think everybody should definitely go and check them out, especially Deep Down Dark. Uh, and uh, thank you for participating in our final live How the Why episode. Thank you. Thank you very much. This has been the How the Why with John Barrett Ingalls. The show is produced by Kevin Stanick and yours truly, with production assistance by Sarah Becker. The How the Why theme music was composed and performed by Dan Record. Please consider supporting 1888 and our mission. Become an 1888 advocate by purchasing our books, participating in our programs, and pledging today. For more information, visit 1888.center. That's 1888.center. I want to remind you all to keep making art. Thank you.